Hello and welcome to Matters of Experience. My name is Abigail Honor. And this is Brenda Cowan. Today on the show, we're focusing on storytelling in experience design, why it's important to tell stories, how experience design has an amazing tool set for creating truly immersive narratives, and how to tell stories effectively. This whole topic is very near and dear to my heart, as you know, Brenda, since my background is filmmaking. Why don't we kick off with the idea of story and why it exists at all? Well, it exists because humans exist. (laughs) Stories exist because they are the means through which people at the earliest age make sense of their lives, of their relationships between themselves and the world around them. It's something that's inherent to all human beings. So think about it like this, Abby. Think about you have children, I have a child, and think about the four-year-old or even the three-year-old who comes home from a play date or a young child coming home from school or whatever and just telling you endlessly about what happened during school, what the teacher said, what the other kids did, and also interspersing a lot of questions. Where did that come? from? Why did that happen? How does this work? Mom, what do you think about that? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. These recountings of daily experiences are the earliest forms of storytelling, and they are literally how it is that young children figure out how the world works and how things work around them and what their relationship is to it. And that's storytelling. And it's the basis of communication. It's how human beings make connections with each other. So these, these are stories. There are earliest stories and they're evolutionary. They're just simply a part of how we need to function as individuals. Yeah, no, I completely agree with you. I'm, it felt a little bit like uh, you obviously a fly on the wall in my house as well, <laughs> a constant barrage of questions. But I, I think if we look back at our earliest forms of storytelling, I think about cave paintings. So humans really want to connect. It's like, as you said, our basic inter- instinct. It's how we survive and multiply. And when you think about it at the next level a little deeper, we now want to communicate our emotions. It's not just a story about what we did. It's about how it made us feel. And that's one of the very basic reasons why we tell stories, to communicate and share our feelings through these personal stories. When I think about experiences we create, the stories we tell really must touch the visitor in a very personal way and help them connect with the world around them and think about our place in history. And in order to do that, there are a few things you need to think about in order to tell a good story. Absolutely. And I think that at its most fundamental level, I think that a really good story, I think that a great story is one that is an archetype. It's one that is universal to all people. So folks, if you're familiar with Joseph Campbell, yes, I am pulling from the Joseph Campbell playbook and the Hero with a Thousand Faces. And I'm talking about how stories that are archetypal are things such as the story of the hero's journey or stories of love and hate or challenges to be overcome. These are stories that are familiar to people across culture and throughout time, and even throughout age. Very young children can understand great archetypal stories in the same way that somebody who is in their senior years is going to be able to understand and have their own specific relationship to a story. When you've got really archetypal stories that you are telling in whatever form you're telling them, They're going to be unifiers of people, and in our cases, people who come into exhibitions will come together, will have pro-social behavior even, when the story is one that is familiar to all of them, and that is very meaningful to all of them. 
And I think as well as understanding the type of story you're telling, the next question is, what's your plot? And we always think, what are the key moments? And this is how we break up and decide actually on our zoning plan. We start with the story we're telling and break that up into episodes. Very, very top line, but then we start to spread them around in the space already because our discipline is wholly unique. I really think we're telling an overall story in a physical space. I don't know anybody else or any group of people who are able to do that and face that challenge. It's a really amazing challenge. It's one of the things I love about what we do, that challenge of moving people through a space and controlling how they feel. In a film, you're a captive audience. You actually pay a ticket, you sit down, and you're willing to contribute that two, three hours to the film. But in a museum experience or a retail experience or any other sort of immersive experience, you really have freedom as a visitor to select moments of the story and what you focus on and take in. And I love trying in some ways to be able to control or manage and curate this visitor emotional experience to make sure that we're really connecting, telling the stories we want to tell in the most effective and visceral way. Well, I really want to underscore when you were talking about people having freedom and choice when they are experiencing the stories and that freedom and choice of participation is something that is in some ways unique to the exhibition or the experience designed space and exhibitions that attempt to function in a very linear narrative way like a film, I think are probably the least effective kind. But instead, when you give people a narrative or a a story that is uh, designed into a space where people have freedom and choice to experience it in a number of different ways, then you've got people who are going to be able to really engage. And you're making me think of the timeless words of Jerome Bruner, who talked about narrative experience. So we're talking about story, what is story, and then there's the way in which people experience the story. And there's actually a field called narrativity, And the brilliant museum scholar Leslie Bedford does a lot of terrific writing about narrativity and narrative experience and how it is very different, actually, than the story. It's how you are telling the story and how people are experiencing the story through narrativity. When we're talking about narrative experience, we think about how people experience the stories. And in the exhibition forum, there still needs to be emotional arc There needs to be variances of pace. There needs to be moments of great drama and great heightened emotion, but then also moments of pause and moments of quietude, let's say. Just like a great book, just like a great film. Yeah. Just in a unique form. I completely agree. Drama is about a juxtaposition. It's about a conflict. So you have to have the moments of the highs and the moments of the lows. I see it almost like music. It needs to ebb and it needs to flow. Moments when they're fully immersed in the experience that really reaches and touches you to the core and truly moves you. And then you often need, after that moment, you need to reflect. You need a space to breathe especially when you're dealing with some of the harder subject matters. Otherwise, it becomes overwhelming and I think becomes an unsuccessful experience. And also resonance. I mean, I would argue as well that when you have high drama of whatever sort it is, even even if it's something very hilarious, right, something particularly, you know, funny that you experience, if there isn't a space and a moment of pause afterwards, it's not going to be able to kind of reverberate One of the things I always think about is some people are visual learners and some are oral. 
And your exhibit really needs to work for both of these groups and it needs to be very succinct and straight to the point. When you think about a 30-second commercial, for example, some of the best move you and you have a takeaway, right? You watch them, they're quick, they get their message out there and you're moved. People can't retain huge details after a museum visit. It's usually just a few key points, key emotions, key things that they actually remember and share with friends and family afterwards. I always challenge our team with answering the question, what are the key points from this museum design, from this experience design that you want the visitor to leave with? What are we trying to do? And we constantly refer back to that at every moment to make sure that we're hitting that at the very least and make sure your narrative reiterates it over and over again. The thing that I love about crafting story and thinking about narrative experience, like you're describing, is understanding that stories always have a point of view. And when you take that as a touch point in the beginning of crafting your experience, it really enables you to make a lot of, I think, really intelligent design decisions. One of my favorite things is thinking about first-person narrative. And especially thinking about exhibitions that are, let's say, very challenging or exhibitions where there are multiple truths, which is kind of almost like every exhibition. But taking a position of first-person narrative, for example, as a way of telling the story could be a very, very effective way to shape exhibitions. Also, I think about other great strategies of storytelling and exhibitions are using questions, questions as a strategy questions that allow visitors to direct their own experience, questions that enable visitors and encourage them or prompt them to really craft their own stories and to personalize things in very deep ways. Yeah, completely agree with you. Picking up with that idea of the first-person narrative, I was actually just in London and visited Churchill's War Rooms and the museum there. I was listening to the voiceover explaining the story, which was fine, but it didn't really touch me. It was very factual, it was informational, it was interesting, right? But I wasn't moved until there was a moment when one of the ladies who'd worked in the War Rooms at this period started to talk to me and she started to tell me her story. And then another one told me her story. And why it was so moving is because the stories they told were sort of odd and interesting and obscure and not what you'd expect. And the way they painted the picture of what it was like from their perspective really broke through that ice and resonated with me. And I got chills up my spine and I imagined them in the space and it really transported me back in time. I think that thinking back to the idea of archetype as well, when you take a great archetypal story, something that is just as if it were pulled out of today's headlines, something about, you know, love and hate or peace and war, any kind of conflict or forbidden love, stories such as this, all of a sudden you really need to have multiple voices telling these stories because there are multiple truths. And I think that what we're finding in terms of storytelling in exhibitions now is that there's a responsibility for that to be the case. We need to hear the audiences and our visitors' voices as a part of the telling of the stories in our exhibitions. And I just love thinking about how powerful first-person narrative is just experientially in terms of emotion, but I'm also thinking about how it's really necessary if we're going to really do an honest job of creating experiences. The idea of listening to the stories from visitors broadens the net of the stories around the subject. You are curating, you have to curate. And so you have to 
make decisions. And I think it's a wonderful opportunity to enable the visitor to expand those opportunities by telling us their perspective on this story. And I think it also enables museums to not become static, to constantly evolve with the visitor and share new perspectives. If we're talking about historical museums or anything that's sort of from the past, hearing different people's perspectives enables the visitor to enjoy putting them together like a puzzle and feeling that more palpable truth, I'll say, that more alive truth and also more believable context of the story. Sure, We're talking about the voice of the story. I want to shift it a little bit now and talk about how you can tell a story without words. Very powerful stories can be told in just a simple image or emotions conveyed with a sound or a piece of music. I think it's too easy to fall back on simple storytelling conventions or ways to tell stories when maybe there is a better way to tell that story. So for example, we look at first, are there any artifacts that tell this story really well? For us, it's a lot about curating what's the best way, most effective way to tell the story. So it's really important to look at the story and not always default to a convention of maybe a voiceover or a piece of media or a text panel. There's lots of other ways, very efficient, simple ways that will resonate with a really broad audience. So I think it's just important to note that there are so many ways to tell stories. And I have a wonderful example of sound in exhibitions that relates directly to stories. I'm going back many, many, many years to the Minnesota Historical Society, the exhibition, If These Walls Could Talk, and it was a history exhibition. And all you need to know is that you were in a room that was loosely mocked up as a living room, and you could press your ear against the wall. And you could hear the neighbors talking. And it was through this experience of listening and in a very voyeuristic, which is so human and so natural, but in a very voyeuristic fashion, you are listening to your, quote, neighbors having a conversation and you are gaining story through that. And it is absolutely compelling and such an intelligent use of audio. I love that. It's so simple. So simple. It completely immerses you as if you are the neighbor listening to the story. I mean, putting you into the story. And that, I think, is phenomenal experience design. So I think our experiences should utilize all the senses. One of our recent projects for the Jewish Museum and Tolerance Center, we used a lot of props. So we had bread, seeds, And it gave off this smell, naturally, that was so immersive and so nostalgic that just that was enough to throw people back to the period. And it really helped convey the mood that we were trying to create. Smell is the most immediately linked sense with memory. Mm -hmm. Yep. It's really extraordinary. And we mentioned props, but there's another way in which objects serve as really critical storytelling devices. And I'm thinking about how it is that increasingly you're finding in museums objects that are everyday, that are mundane. I'm thinking about the 9-11 Memorial Museum that uses the ordinary everyday objects that people donated and how the objects are used by the Memorial Museum to tell the story of the events of that day. 
Mm-hmm. And we're talking about things like people's, you know, burnt and tattered ID badges. We're talking about a crushed wristwatch and on and on. There are so many objects used in that, in the entire institution, to tell the story of what happened and from all of the different perspectives. And I think about a couple of different things. And again, this is not, you know, unique to the 9-11 Memorial Museum. This is a device for how to tell a story and how to tell. We were talking about multiple truths, using personal objects, ordinary everyday objects to tell a story can be one of the most authentic and truth-bearing ways of telling a story. And also, the, in some instances, I think the most affective, the most emotional, the most powerful. Great objects are archetypal. Think of a key. Think about how universal a key is. Cutting across age, cutting across uh, culture, cutting across time. You've got certain things that are so symbolic and so relatable that when you see them in an exhibition, you're going to have a very personal connection with them. And I think that as storytelling devices, curating with objects is one of the best modalities for telling a great story. And the objects will do the lifting for you. They really, they really will. Objects will do the storytelling for you. I think the critical thing is making sure that you're selecting and using the object or showing the object in support of the story and the moment you're trying to tell. I think that's in the curating, it's in the design, it's in the lighting, it's in the, the flow of what somebody's just seen, and it all has to come together to tell that story point in the right way. I think that's what's really tricky because in the example you just gave, we all recognize what those objects represent. As you mentioned, they're imbued with a history, with a narrative that when we see them moves us. And you don't need to see a lot of those to be moved. They're they're wonderfully descriptive objects. Think about shoes. Mm -hmm. Shoes as they're used in the Holocaust Museum so brilliantly. Shoes in an exhibition um, that I saw not long ago about Syrian refugees and a little child's pair of sneakers. With shoes, you've you've got an age, right? You've got an idea of a stature of a human body. You've got an idea of a culture, right? Or a place in the world, or even maybe a type of work. They're hugely personal. Yeah, and um, having the courage to display sometimes a few things rather than a lot. I think an effective story is told efficiently. It doesn't need extra things around it to support it. So, Abby, when you're talking about visitor overload and when you're talking about this temptation with objects in particular to, to just pack them in, sometimes that makes a lot of sense. Sometimes it doesn't. I think it really depends on the, you know, the situation and the uniqueness of the experience that you're creating and the story that you're telling. But it makes me think of something that I learned this from um, museum scholar Leslie Bedford, who talks about how it is that great exhibition environments can be designed and the narrative can be constructed in the subjunctive mood, which is actually taken from uh, literature. But the idea of subjunctive mood is you leave blanks in the information which means maybe you don't put in 100 objects, maybe you put in 10 objects. And when you put in those 10 objects, people can, for themselves, automatically construct 
the story. They can believe that they are in this other time or in this other place. They can relate to these objects and understand young child, young child who was in some kind of a difficult situation because it's all covered, the shoes are covered in mud or whatever the case might be. So it's editing, editing, editing. It's editing, 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 and it's editing towards really understanding that human beings, they will bring the story in. Garrison Keillor, this is another wonderful reference that Leslie loves to make. Garrison Keillor, the great storyteller, talks about this in his work. You can listen to a radio program and you're not seeing the pictures. You're not seeing that living room. You're not seeing exactly what the dining table looks like or what those chairs, but you're getting a visual in your mind of living room, of dining table, of mom's best china or whatever, you know, the setting might be. People will fill in the blanks. Yeah, they use their imagination and they create the visuals. Which is such an important, and it, it takes a lot of courage. You used the word courage earlier, and I'll, I'll reinforce that as well. It takes a lot of courage for a curator, for a design team, to kind of think in that way when telling a story. But it is, when it is done right, it's so much more, it's so much more powerful, so much more effective. Yeah, I often think that it's, those simple design solutions that are always the most effective. And I mentioned courage, but having the confidence to know that that's going to be effective and work, that takes years of experience. Yeah. You know, you've got to overcrowd a few things before you're like, no, we need to strip this down and start seeing what works. And there's also visitor overload from just coming into the museum or the experience and starting to read and sit and listen. And I think there's a moment where, at least for me, you've seen enough, like it's too much or you start switching off or you can't absorb anything else and you need a rest. You literally need need a break from info coming in. So after a few hours in an amazing experience, when you've had some deep emotional engagement, even when you've had moments of relief, we just all need a timeout. You need to go, you need to rest, come back to the museum a different day. You don't have to get round. There's no obligation to complete things. I think if you've gone enjoyed even part of a story or it's resonated with you, that's enough. Well, I know in another episode, we're going to be talking about prototyping and we're going to be talking about engagement in the exhibition, uh, in the whole development process and all of that, because fine-tuning these things, getting them just right, these are the reasons why we prototype and why we engage target audiences in our development processes as well, because it is Telling these stories well and getting it just right is a real trick. So there's one thing is the story when you actually visit the museum. And the other is, you were mentioning this arc, the arc within the museum. And then mm -hmm. there's the larger arc before you visit and after you visit and hopefully when you repeat visit. Right. So there's that overarching story. And how do you incorporate the visitor into that? And how does your story change over time? Which I think is you know also another thing to think about. It's overwhelming. It's very challenging to replicate the story from w within the museum outside and I think what's exciting is we have things like social media we mm -hmm. have the web to be able to talk about the story in a different way mm -hmm. because you're not physically in the space so you're not designing physically but you're still designing and telling that story and I find that really fascinating using all the different types of tools we have at our disposal to I would say magnify the story. 
I mean, I'm listening to you and um, I tend to think of it as the extended visitor experience. So there's always the pre-visit, there's always the post-visit and a great design team always accounts for that. I love the idea of really this meta-narrative that, you know, the actually being on site at the institution or being in the uh, experience, whatever it is, is really just one piece of it. And we see increasingly in recent years how much uh, sort of personalization and customization, people doing things online, through social media, before going to the experience or the exhibition is increasingly really an expected tool. I'm also thinking about post-visit where, again, predominantly through social media or even repeat visitation, that these things are being accounted for to enable people to be engaged in sort of taking the story that they experience in the space into their own everyday lives in one way or another. I'm thinking as well, though, of a very recent read that I did that was just so fun. I was talking about TikTok with my colleague and how museums are increasingly using TikTok. And she kind of sighed and she said, yeah, I guess it's not going to be a fad after all. (laughs) And so I love TikTok. I think it's a really terrific tool. And just as an example, Abby, I see it as a storytelling tool. I really do. And I think about curators who use TikTok to tell very quick, one-minute, little personal stories related to the content of the exhibitions that are charming, quite frankly, and that are just extending the narrative. I also think with tools like TikTok, social media, Mm -hmm. that it reaches a new audience. And I think that's really important to bring Mm -hmm. that new audience, that younger audience into the fold, into these experiences, and eventually, hopefully through the walls of the museum and actually experience it themselves. And use social media to collect people's story, which is what places like the Hip Hop Museum, Washington, D.C., they use hashtags and they are collecting tons and tons and tons of personal stories all related to hip hop music and people's experiences with hip hop culture. Because the stories continue. (laughs) Oftentimes you can go to any historical museum and those stories need to evolve and they need to be relevant today. So enabling people to tell their story about whatever theme or messages in your museum, I think just builds the legacy of the story. Perhaps unlike a film, there really is no big the end. No, there isn't. When it comes to this particular work that we do, which is kind of gorgeous. It is. It's very unique and we're very lucky. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in this week. I hope you heard something useful for your practice. We want to hear from you, so please send us in your questions, thoughts, or observations on any and all your experiences. Bye for now. Thank you so much, everybody. Goodbye. Matters of Experience is produced by Lorem Ipsum Corp. Please tune in next week for another conversation. Thank you all for listening.